Well, welcome back to the Refuting Calvinism YouTube channel. Uh, back with you today. We start a new series today called uh, Calvinist Confusion. Uh, this series will be focusing on um, the way Calvinists redefine biblical words, uh, not by the Bible itself, but by some kind of external definition to fit their theology. And today, to start the series right, we're going to look at two different words that I've seen defined or used improperly by Calvinists over and over again. <clears throat> and it results in some really bad theology. And I, I really believe this is really the foundation of Calvinism. Um, I used to believe partially in Calvinism. I used to believe in P, perseverance of the saints. Uh, I did used to believe in a sinful nature. I did used to believe in a limited atonement based upon foreknowledge. Um, so I used to partially be a Calvinist, but when I really started going to the foundation of things, not even back to TULIP, but back to the words and how they define the words, and how some of them translate the words from the Greek, I saw what the problem was. And these uh, improper definitions of the words are so widespread that they're accepted by everybody. And because they're accepted by everybody, it leads to Calvinism. And rightly so, because these definitions of these words really only fit Calvinism and its system. So today we're going to look at two different words. Uh, we're going to look at the word impute. Uh, the word impute is a lot in regards to the atonement. And uh, the word propitiation, which is used a lot in regards to the atonement as well. And uh, my view of the atonement changed about three years ago. And this is really what rocked my world and changed me from believing in perseverance of the saints and believing into this limited atonement. Uh, and I was kind of at the point where I was going to go, you know, basically believe in Calvinism if, if this, I thought the Bible taught or go the opposite direction which is what I end up doing. Um, so the atonement is very important a very crucial part of our theology. It's the center of our theology and what you believe on the atonement will really affect everything else you believe. So let's, let's look at the first one. What I want to look at first is the Greek word uh, or the word propitiation, English word propitiation which is used four times in the New Testament uh, I think I'm really going to look at, focus on one today, um, and it's, it's the Greek word, halasterion. Um, so let's, let's read Romans chapter 3, and see what this has to say about it, and then I'll tell you what the Greek word the definition of it is, the proper definition, and how that relates to how it'll affect our theology and our view on the atonement. Right, Romans chapter 3, and verse... I will start in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So you have this Greek word, uh, this, this English word propitiation here in verse 25. It's the Greek word halasterion. And it basically means this. It means the means of expiation or the place of propitiation. And then the Septuagint, version, the Greek version of the Old Testament this is the word that is translated as mercy seat when describing the Ark of the Covenant, that gold-plated mercy seat where the, the blood was poured by the, 
the, uh, the high priest uh, on the Day of Atonement. Uh, so that, that it's, propitiation is actually synonymous with mercy seat. Um, and the, the first definition we have here for Hilasterion from the BDAG dictionary, Greek, uh, Greek lexicon, is um, the means of expiation. It simply means this. Um, the initiative taken by God to effect removal of impediments to a relationship with God's self. So, the propitiation, or Christ's atonement, removed the impediments, this is God taking the initiative here to do this, to remove the impediments of one's relationship with God. The question now becomes, what is that impediment? Now, from the Calvinistic side of things, the impediment seems to be the wrath of God, the personal, individual wrath and justice of God. And I just got done watching for a second time a video by Paul Washer, uh, uploaded by Lane C.H., which is titled Propitiation Halasterion. And uh, he, he says that what needs to happen for God to forgive us of our sins is that his wrath, his justice, must be satisfied, personally, individually satisfied, in order for God to forgive a sinner of their sins. And he seems to be saying that the removal, the impediment that's there, that needs to be removed by the propitiation, is the wrath of God. Now I agree, God has wrath, and God's wrath is upon the sinner as long as he's still in his sin. Uh, but I don't believe that the impediment that needs to be removed is the wrath of God. Uh, God is willing and able to set aside his wrath, to lay it aside, and forgive a sinner if the right conditions are met. Uh, what are those conditions? First of all, a the uh, sin, sinless, perfect sacrifice of the Son of God. That's something we can't. It's a condition that we cannot meet ourselves. God must meet that condition. That's the initiative He takes to remove the impediments to a relationship with Him. Uh, and then the sinner must repent, and they must trust in the Savior, what He's done on the cross, and then walk in holiness, because God will not have fellowship with sinners. So, the question is: the propitiation, the part that God did to remove the impediment to relation with God. The initiative God took was the cross, what Christ did on the cross and his shedding of blood. What does that remove? What is this impediment that's in the way? Well, the impediment that's in the way to us having a relationship with God is our sins, our personal, individual sins. And this you'll see in a little while how this is going to relate to the word impute and how uh, Calvinists will twist that word as well and redefine it to, say, to mean something it really doesn't mean. So, Let's look at some other passages to prove what I'm saying here, um, uh, what the impediment is that God removes. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 18. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. <clears throat> now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So, it says here in verse 18 and 19 and 20, that the world is reconciled to God. Of course, not the whole world, of course, but that the world can be reconciled to God through, this, through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But if the Calvinists are right in that the wrath of God is the impediment that needs to be satisfied, that needs to be removed in order for God to forgive sinners, if that is the truth, then you, this cross would reconcile God to the world, 
not the world, to God. See, God always stands ready to forgive and pardon if the right conditions are met, which is the sinless sacrifice of, the, of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, a repentance of the sinner, the faith of the sinner, and the, the atonement for sins, and, and walking a life of holiness. Uh, if these conditions are met, God is willing and able to, to reconcile us to him, not him to us. Okay, so that's the, the first scripture passage there. Let's go to Galatians chapter 1 and verse 3 and 4. This talks about what actually happened at the cross. Uh, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. This is why he gave himself for our sins, not for the wrath of God, but for our sins. That he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. So, what did Christ give himself for? For our sins, not for the wrath of God, for our sins. Why? That he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. So we have to be delivered from this present evil age to be walking in holiness in order for us to have a relationship to be reconciled to God the Father. Next is Colossians chapter 1 and verse 21. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. So the whole point of the cross, we who once were alienated and enemies in our mind with by our wicked works, Christ is now reconciled through his body to present us holy, present us holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. So the blood of Jesus Christ offers the, the pardon, the forgiveness of our sins that have already been committed, that we're willing to repent of, and uh, then we can walk in holiness and be blameless in his sight. So there's a two things, there's twofold thing. It influences us to live, to repent of our sins and live holy. And because we'll do that, we repent and live holy, he's willing and able to forgive us of our past sins and not hold them against us any longer. Hebrews. Hebrews is a really good book when it comes to the atonement. If you really want to clarify what the atonement is and what happened to the atonement and why it was given, read the book of Hebrews. And you'll see that nowhere in the book of Hebrews it mentioned that God's wrath was poured out on Jesus or that God's wrath needed to be satisfied at the cross. It doesn't say that at all. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds who being the brightness of his glory, an express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So now we have Christ purged us, or cleansed us of our sins. So it's not just a satisfying God's wrath, but a purging or cleansing of our sins. In fact, I would say it's not a, he didn't satisfy God's wrath at all, of course. Uh, that the, the impediment, once again, that's being removed as Christ being the propitiation for our sins is our sins being removed, purged from us, cleansed from us. And that paves the way for us being back in relationship with God as we live a holy life. Uh, the next scripture we'll look at is Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 22. Uh, And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. 
And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or forgiveness. Remission and forgiveness are synonymous. Uh, so Christ, uh, Christ's blood purifies us from our sins. And because we're purified from our sins, we can have forgiveness of our sins, which is really synonymous to the same thing. Uh, Hebrews 9, and just a couple verses down, verse 24. Uh, for Christ, actually we'll just start in verse 23. For, Therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Talking about the animal sacrifices. For Christ has not entered the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with with the blood of another, uh, he then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So Christ, once again, did not uh, satisfy the wrath of God or, you know, uh, receive the wrath of God upon himself. It was simply that he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself and therefore paved the way, once again, for us to have a reconciled relationship with God because God will not have fellowship or a relationship with sinners. Let's move on to the next verse, Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 12. Uh, Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Of course the word sanctify means to make holy or to set apart. So through his own blood he sanctifies the people uh, he purifies the people. So that's what Christ's sacrifice was for. The impediment, the propitiation, which removes the impediment, uh, which paves the way for us to have a relationship with God, is Christ's blood removing the sin, purifying the sin. Uh, and therefore God forgiving us of the sin and, and uh, treating us as if we had never sinned. Treating us as if we were holy on Christ's behalf. Uh, so I think this, uh, these scriptures and many others that I, ha- I haven't looked at uh, sufficiently show that what happened at the cross uh, through Jesus Christ's sacrifice was that uh, he removed the stain of sin so that God could be in relationship with us once again. So once again, it's not God being reconciled to us, us being reconciled to God. The impediment in the way from us having a relationship with God not the wrath of God, not the anger of God, although God does have wrath and anger for sinners, it is sin. And if that sin is removed, God puts aside his anger, puts aside his wrath, and he has an, a loving relationship with, uh, with his sons and daughters, his spiritual sons and daughters. So that's propitiation. Very important thing to get down. Uh, it doesn't mean that Christ took the wrath of God upon himself or that he satisfied uh, the personal wrath and justice of God. Uh, now I'm going to look at this issue of imputation. Imputation uh, for too long has been uh, defined as transfer, uh, to transfer. Uh, the Calvinistic system believes that the, the sin of Adam was imputed to us. We are imputed with the sin of Adam. What he did in the garden was imputed to us, that we were born sinners, why we were, uh, were under, born under the wrath of God. A lot of Calvinists would say, some of, not all of them say that, but a lot of them would say we were born under the wrath of God. Um, and that's why we're sinners. We're, we're sinners uh, not because we sin, but we sin because we're sinners. So we're imputed, or the sin of Adam is transferred to us. Um, and then when we repent of our sins and trust in Christ, our sins are transferred to Christ, and Christ's righteousness is transferred to us. The question is, is this found anywhere in the Bible? 
The answer is no. It's not found anywhere in the Bible. And I want to look at the word impute uh, in the Bible here and see what it actually says. Let's look at, I think we'll just look at one passage here and to see what it says. Let's start in Romans chapter 4 and verse 1. And we'll read through verse 8. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Okay, so let's, let's look at this issue here, the word impute, and see if the Calvinistic definition, and, you know, just to be fair, a lot of other Christians who aren't Calvinists define the word impute like this. Let's see if their definition of impute uh, would work just in this passage alone. Now, the Greek word for impute here um, is logizomai. And um, so logizomai basically means this. It means to... Uh, give careful thought to a matter, to think about, consider, ponder, uh, to hold to a view about, think, believe, be of the opinion, and uh, it also means to uh, to account, to determine by mathematical process, to reckon, to calculate. Uh, so it, it's accounting, or to reckon, to consider as. That's what it really means, and that's why you see in verse 5 of the New King James Version, uh, the, the Greek word here is actually logizomai, uh, but that's not, it's translated here as accounted in verse 5. And in the NASB, it's translated as credited as righteousness. So, but what is credited as righteousness here? Is it a transfer of Christ's righteousness to us? No, it says in verse 5, his faith is accounted for righteousness. So, one who trusts in God. Now, this is not just some a mental ascent or some holding to a certain doctrine. If you hold to these doctrines, therefore you're saved. No, it's, it's justification here is a, 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 a trusting faith, a, a surrendering faith, a complete uh, obedience faith. That's what it means to have this kind of faith. If someone has that kind of faith, as James says, faith without works is dead. They have to have a working faith, an obedient faith. If they have that kind of faith, it's accounted as righteousness. So it basically means not that you're saved by the, the, your faith or you're saved by the righteous things you do after that, but God will count you as righteous. He will not hold your past th sins against you because of the faith you have now in the atonement, the propitiation for sins. Um, and it goes on to say, his faith is accounted as righteous in verse 5, just as David also describes the blessed of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. So this imputing of righteousness here. So God uh, is accounting them as righteous. Not a transfer of Christ's personal righteousness in this life that he lived and transferring that to us. Uh, no, it's, it's accounting us as if we were righteous because of what Christ did on the cross. What he accomplished on the cross. His shedding of blood. Uh, his beating and bruising. By his stripes we are healed. Um, so on him he took the iniquity of us all. So it's, 
it's because of what Christ did on the cross that we're able to be considered or reckoned as righteous or accounted as righteous, but something's required of us as well. Uh, we must have faith, we must have an obedient trust in Christ uh, for us to be accounted as righteousness apart from works. So our good works don't save us, <clears throat> but the, our works prove that we have a saving faith. Uh, in verse 7, once again, it says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Now you see this here. The imputing of righteousness is synonymous or equaling, equated to having your lawless deeds forgiven. Now the Greek word for forgiven here, let's look at that real quick, is the Greek word af e a me. And uh, this word, according to the BDAG dictionary, means to dismiss or release someone or something from a place or one's presence. Uh, it also means to release from legal or moral obligation or a consequence, uh, which is synonymous with cancel, remit, or pardon, and or, or to the uh, the separation of, the divorcing of, uh, to leave standing, lying. Uh, so these things are what happen, and you can see a great example of this forgiveness of what happens uh, when someone repents and trusts in Christ. You can see a good example of that in the Gospel according to Matthew. And uh, it's in Matthew chapter 18. And what you see here is uh, Peter asking Jesus in Matthew 18, 21. And Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with a servant. So the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servant. So these, these servants of God, talking about the kingdom of heaven, relating this parable to the kingdom of heaven here, they have a debt to God. Uh, and that debt is their sin. And the wages of sin is death, spiritual death, the second death, it's, uh, it, it casting into the, being cast into the lake of fire. That's what the, the wages of sin is. That's what your sin will earn you. Uh, your sin will cost you your very soul. So let's read on here and see what happens. In verse 24, And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. So he forgave him the debt. Now he came with brokenness and contriteness in his heart, and the master had mercy on him and forgave him the debt. He didn't hold it against him. He pardoned him of it. He, for, uh, he remitted him. He didn't hold it against him any longer, just as the word uh, Aphiame says. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe me. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. But he would not. He went out and threw him to prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw that what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, as I had pity on you? 
and his master was angry and delivered him to the torture until he should pay all that was due him. So my heavenly Father also will do to each of of you, from his heart, does, who from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. So, uh, a lot of good stuff in there. But you see that God is willing to forgive; He's willing to pardon. Uh, but even that forgiveness and pardon is conditional upon us forgiving others as He has forgiven us. Uh, now, the Calvinists would call this for salvation. Oh, because I didn't forgive someone, God won't forgive me. That's, you know, maintaining your salvation or salvation by works. No, that's what the Bible says. This is how the, the kingdom of heaven will be like. Uh, that if, if God forgives you of your sin or pardons you of your sin, but you won't forgive someone of their sin against you, then he will hold it against you and he will reinstall, reinstall your punishment. He will remit, he'll take away his pardon, his forgiveness, and reinstall your punishment, which is being turned over to tortures until all shall be paid. That was due to him. Um, so that's a, one example here. But going back to Romans 4, once again, the synonymous here with imputation of righteousness is forgiveness whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. So if impute means to, uh, to transfer righteousness, that means our faith is transferred as righteousness according to the Calvinist interpretation of verse 5. Our faith is transferred as righteousness. Now that makes no sense. That's not even what the Calvinists believe. Uh, and then down in verse 6. Uh, Blessed is the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. So now that would go along with the Calvinist system. Uh, but the problem is it doesn't go around with what the verses uh, around it are saying. It doesn't go along with those verses. So down in verse 7. Blessed are those whose lawlessness are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Now, wait a minute. If the word impute means transfer here, who is a man who is so blessed who the Lord does not transfer sin to him? I thought everyone had sin, the sin of Adam transferred to them. So everyone, according to the Calvinist system, who's, you know, because everyone's born a sinner, has had the sin of Adam imputed to them. So who are these people who God has not transferred sin to? Uh, so, once again, this passage alone, I think, I think, sufficiently says, and if you look at the Greek word for impute and the Greek word for forgive, you see that imputation of righteousness is synonymous with forgiveness. Uh, it, imputation means to account or to recognize or to consider as or to credit as as if they are righteous, even though literally speaking, we've all sinned wickedly in the past. I've been a wicked sinner in the past. And I thank God for the atonement of Christ. That he's able to consider me as if I am righteous because of what Christ did on the cross. Uh, that my, my lawless deeds can be forgiven. And that is the blessedness of what Christ did on the cross, that my lawless deeds can be forgiven, that my sin will not be counted against me, and now I've been purified of my sin, purged of my sin, because the propitiation uh, for sin is made through Jesus Christ, and that's the impediment that needs to be removed so we can have a reconciled relationship with God the Father through Jesus. Um, so these, these are the correct definitions of these words of imputation, and these words of, of forgiveness, and this word of, of propitiation. These words don't mean what the Calvinistic system says they mean. And I just, if you're a Calvinist, I plead with you to wake up to, to the facts, to the truth, uh, to look at the foundation of everything you believe, to see if it's true. I, I used to be somewhat in your shoes. I was going down this path of Calvinism at one point in time, uh, but thank God he showed me the truth, and I was able to seek after the truth and see uh, what the truth is. 
So don't believe what a, a pastor or a preacher tells you just because they're saying it passionately or with force or they're using fear that you may be called a heretic if you don't believe what they believe. Um, so once again, just to summarize, um, propitiation does not mean that God poured out his wrath on his son or uh, his son fulfilled or satisfied the personal wrath and indignation of God the Father. It simply means that Christ removed the impediments that were there. And God is the one who took this initiate, the initiative to do this. God took initiative to remove the impediments that were in the way uh, for us having a relationship with God the Father once again. And that was sending Jesus Christ to shed his blood on the cross. Because without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And according to the law, blood purifies uh, us from our sin, according to Hebrews 9.22. So the blood of Jesus Christ is able to forgive you, to cleanse you, <clears throat> to purify you. And if you'll repent of your sin and trust in what Christ did on the cross, God will consider it if you are righteous. He's not going to transfer someone else's personal righteousness to you, even Christ. The Bible does not say that. You'll find that nowhere in the Bible, and I challenge you to find that anywhere in the Bible. Um, so I, I plead with you, think about these things. Uh, look into these things to see what the truth is. I pray this video has edified you, uh, encouraged you in some way, and educated you maybe in some way. I'm not the smartest person in the world, but I just pray that God can use me in some way for His glory. Uh, this has been another video for Refuting Calvinism. This is the first video in the uh, Calvinist Confusion series. God bless you.